Amen. Good morning, everybody. It has been a while since I've been up, th- up here, um, and there's a, a reason for that. So for those of you who are maybe watching online, I'm, my name is David. I'm a pastor here and a member of the preaching team. And I've, I've been so grateful for Steve covering double duty on preaching because we were a little bit busy. So just in case some of you don't have Facebook, there's Ellswith, our daughter. She was born December 20th, just in time for Christmas. And so we've been getting used to having her around and the sleeplessness and the joy and all of that good stuff. And now when the delivery happened, I always thought, you know, there'd be like a curtain or something, you know, that there'd be some, or there'd be some separation, but I was there for all of it and all, I saw all of it and, you know. Uh, so that was pretty gross, uh, just to be honest. Didn't pass out, though. So, But the, the, the amazing thing about being there for 20, 20 hours of natural labor, no pain meds, my wife is a tank, uh, I've never seen a human being pushed more beyond their ability in my life. Like, no, 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 no sport or athletic feet I've ever seen has, has really pushed someone like childbirth. And it was interesting, uh, you know, she got to this point where she was just like, I can't do this. I don't have the energy. I can't do this. I'm spent. And the nurses are like, no, you do. Because there's a point where, I, where there's something that kicks in that's, that's beyond you, where it's not really you pushing anymore, right? It's just all this instinct that God has put into you that's at work. And afterwards, we were talking about that with the nurses. They're like, pretty much every natural birth, the woman says, I can't do this. I'm done. I have nothing left. And yet the baby is still born. Because it's almost like this external force that comes in to do that delivery. And I think that's a, that's a fitting analogy, a fitting illustration. Because today we're going to talk about the idea that God calls us to join his work of deliverance despite our weakness. That God calls us to join in his work of bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom, despite our weakness. And we've been in in the book of Exodus, and today we're going to be in chapter 4. And I really like Steve really set it up well, because in a sense, Moses' story is our story. Moses' story is very much our story. Not that we are Moses, not that... We have an identical story as Moses' story. But what did Moses do to be saved from genocide as a baby? Nothing. It was the fact that God had called him and planned in ahead that he would be the deliverer of God's people. It was by God's hand that Moses survived as a baby. It was nothing that he did. He was chosen and then entered a path of being used by God despite despite his great weakness. And it's the same for us. God calls us to join his work of deliverance despite our weakness. So let's pray. Oh Lord, please work powerfully through my weakness in these moments. 
Please teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, may these words be yours and not my own. Please do a mighty work in our hearts. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in Exodus chapter 4, our setting is that Moses, our, our main character, murdered someone in Egypt. And so he fled into the wilderness, and he's been a shepherd for a while now. He's gotten lost in the wilderness, and he sees God manifest his power in a burning bush, and Moses goes to investigate, and, and he has this coming to God moment where God says, take off your sandals. I have a plan for you. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. It's time to get my people out of Egypt. It's time to deliver them out of their slavery. That the promised deliverance is finally coming, and God wants to use Moses. And so Moses starts asking God some questions, and they kind of revolve around this idea, well, who are you? Who is this God who's speaking to me out of this burning bush? And in chapter 4, the questions are going to continue. And I'd like you to remember 3, 2, 1. 3, 2, 1. We're going to understand this passage. Three objections, two sons, one faithful God. Three objections, two sons, one faithful God. So Moses has some objections to this idea of him being used to deliver the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt. And the first one we see in verses 1 through 9. In verse 1, it says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses' first objection to his calling is the people won't believe me. What if they say, no, God didn't send you. His first objection is, what if the people don't believe? And God responds, he says, what's in your hand? He has a staff. It's not some magical staff. Right? This isn't Lord of the Rings. It's just a stick of wood. And God says, throw it down on the ground. And it turns into a snake. That's pretty freaky. And he says, pick it up. And so Moses picks up the snake, and it turns back into his staff. But God gives him another sign. He says, put your hand into your jacket. And so he puts his hand into his jacket, and he pulls it out, and it has leprosy on it. Which we aren't used to leprosy. Leprosy really isn't a part of a isn't really a sickness that we see in our part of the world, but it's, it's, it's an incurable skin condition. It was greatly feared in the ancient world. Moses pulls out his hand, and he has this awful disease on it, puts it back in, and it's cured. And then he gives him a third sign. In verse 9, he says, If they will not believe even these two signs... Or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And as we, as we go through God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt, we'll see more and more and more that all of these signs really take aim at the weakness of the Egyptian gods. But we won't, we won't get into that today. 
His second objection, so first, well, what if they don't believe me? God gives him signs. The second objection can be seen in verses 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I want you to to tuck away verse 12 in the back of your mind. We're going to pull that out later. But I love it. Moses' second objection is, I'm not good at speaking. I'm not good at talking. I'm I'm slow of speech. And people have kind of played around with, did he have a speech impediment? Or was he just bad at linguistics? Whatever it was, Moses had some natural inability to speak well. And God goes, yeah, um, who made your mouth? me. And who gave you your disability? Me. So don't you think that I can still use you because I made you this way? And and he really silences him. That's the end of it. (laughs) What if I don't speak well? I, I made your mouth. I'm going to teach you what to say. I've got this. That's God's response to his second objection. But his third objection isn't even a question. In verse 13, Moses says, Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. So the first two objections were kind of these hypotheticals, you know? It's, well, well, what is this going to look like because I can't speak well? And what if the people don't believe me? Now he's just like, Send somebody else. I don't want to do this. I don't. Send someone else. Is there someone else who can do this? And God's anger is kindled against Moses. And, and, and God says, well, okay. Your brother Aaron, he can speak well. He's going to go with you. And you're going to have this relationship with Aaron where I'm going to speak to you. You speak to Aaron. Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. So God is gracious to Moses and gives him a teammate. But he still sends Moses. (laughs) Is there someone else you can send? Oh, Aaron's good at speaking, still sending you. These are his three objections, and God flattens every single one of them. So moving on, Moses, all right, Moses has got to go to Egypt. So he goes to his father-in-law, and he he sort of explains the situation, but not in complete detail. But he takes his family, and he heads to Egypt in verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. I want you to pay attention. It says Moses took his wife and his sons in the plural. So he has children in the plural. He takes his whole family and he goes to Egypt. And verses 21 through 23, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So we talk about three objections. Now we're going to talk about two sons, and here's the first one. In the sight of God, his people Israel, the Hebrews, are like his firstborn son. So God's issue with Pharaoh is not just freeing slaves from their captivity. It is a personal family matter. That God's gathered people are like his firstborn son, and he is going to do whatever it takes to get them out of there. And we see God orchestrating this great drama around powerfully delivering his people out of Egypt. And we'll see how this plays out in the chapters to follow. But now we're going to see that second son. And this part of the story is quite the opposite of God's relationship with his son. In verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. What? Your Bible say that? This isn't a typo in mine. This is one of those verses in the Bible you just go, what? Like, what is going on in, what's, what's happening? It says in verse 24, at the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So, so we previously saw that Moses had children in the plural. He had sons in the plural. You go to the Hebrew, plural sons, here it's referring to one son. It was the Hebrew tradition given by God that all of the boys would be circumcised. They would have the foreskin cut off as a sign of the covenant, that they were in a relationship with the living God as a people. And it seems, you know, we have to read between the lines a bit. Moses fled Egypt. He goes into the wilderness. He, he marries a Midianite woman. And it seems that they had at least circumcised their other sons. Because the issue here is only that they didn't circumcise one of them. So it seems that early in the marriage, Moses was still on board with this whole being a Hebrew thing. And he was trying to raise up his children as if they were part of the covenant people. But at some point in the wilderness, he gave up. At some point, he just said, you know what? I'm never going back to Egypt. I'm just going to die a shepherd in the wilderness. So I'm kind of done with this thing. And so he doesn't circumcise his son. He doesn't give his son that symbol of being in the covenant. And so God inter intervenes on the way to Egypt and says, no, this needs to be set right. If you're going to lead my covenant people, you need to lead your family like you're living in covenant. And so Zipporah, who she, she knows this procedure, she's seen it before. She jumps into action and saves Moses. 
And we could wrestle around these verses for a while. It's a strange section of scripture. But clearly God is holy. Clearly God is holy. And he needs to be worshipped in a certain way. So those are the two sons. God sees his people as his firstborn son and he jealously protects them and delivers them. But on the other hand, Moses was a father and he had given up on leading his kids in the way of his ancestors. You know, for those of us that that are fathers in the room, I'm, I'm a very new father, but we have a responsibility to lead our family in a way that is right. Now we cannot manipulate our kids to become Christians. There's nothing you can do. There's no magic formula to make your kids turn out perfect. But we do have a responsibility to lead our family in the ways that God has given us. So we have three objections, two sons. In verses 27 through 31, we see one faithful God. One faithful God. Verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Despite all of Moses' objections, fears, and doubts, him and Aaron faithfully do what God has told them to do, and God makes it happen. God gives them the signs, and God's people respond with worship, and they are ready to be delivered. God was faithful. Three objections, two sons, one faithful God. God called Moses to join his work of deliverance despite Moses' weakness. Moses wasn't leading his family well, and we see more drama of that happen as we go through the book of Exodus. Moses was slow of speech, and yet God still used him because God was the one doing the deliverance. Moses was just a participant. It didn't rely on Moses' strength. And the same is true of us. The same is true of us. If we go to Colossians 1, 13 through 14, And referring to God, it says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Next verse. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we've stopped trusting in our own ability to be good or to save ourselves. We've stopped trusting in our own life strategies to make everything work out. We recognize that we are sinners and we throw ourselves in the grace of God and we say, Jesus, I know that you have paid for my sins. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into Jesus' kingdom, into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of light. We're transferred. We are grabbed from this kingdom and delivered to the next. The Hebrews were delivered from the kingdom of Egypt into the land that God had promised them. And in a similar way, when we are saved, we are delivered from a dark kingdom where we are enslaved to our sins and our passions. We are under the influence of the enemy and we are delivered to a kingdom with perfect peace and a perfect ruler, the kingdom of light, the kingdom 
of the Son. This is the great work of deliverance that God is doing in our time. He's doing it today. And the beauty is you see in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission is that we as Christians are invited to participate in God's work of deliverance in the world. Though none of us are strong enough to do the work of deliverance, God has welcomed us, instructed us, and invited us to make disciples, to baptize, to teach others everything that Jesus has commanded us. We get to participate in this work of dragging people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And God does it despite our weaknesses. And I'd like to share a bit of my own story in a bit, but first let's go through Moses' three objections because I think these are very, very common in our own hearts. Right, that first objection was, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? And we sometimes take the burden of changing hearts on ourselves when it solely belongs to God. We sometimes take the burden of changing hearts on ourselves when it solely belongs to God. It's so easy to get into a mindset where we, where we feel a burden to share Christ with one of our unsaved family members, a relative, a neighbor, and we think to ourselves, I just don't have the arguments. I'm not going to be able to convince them to be a Christian. I mean, they've been living this way for 20 years. I, I, I can't do that. They won't believe me. But God has not given us the ability to change people's hearts. We, we cannot manipulate the hearts and minds of other people. All we have to do is be faithful to give the message that God has given us, and he's the one who changes hearts. But so often we let the response of others become an obstacle. We say, well, I know they're going to respond this way or they might respond this way, so I'm not, I'm not going to even bother talking with them about this. We just avoid the conversation altogether. But changing hearts is not our responsibility, it's God's. We just need to be faithful with the message. Secondly, Moses brought up his ability and, and we, we sometimes see our limitations as limiting what God can do. And this very much runs in the same vein. We say, I'm just not educated enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know philosophy well enough. Or, or we might even have the same exact one that Moses had. We say, I'm not good at speaking. I'm not good with words. I'm not good with conflict. I mean, I mean fill in the blank. I'm not good at fill in the blank. We sometimes offer that as our objection on why we're not going to reach out to someone, why we're not going to minister to someone, why we're not going to be generous with someone, why we're not going to do ministry, why we're not going to participate in God delivering people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We look at our human limitations and we somehow think that God cannot work beyond those. But he can. He's in the business of doing that. Thirdly, Moses said, send somebody else. <laughs> I don't want to go. Send somebody else. And we sometimes run from God's calling because we want to avoid discomfort and difficulty. We sometimes run from God's calling because we want to avoid discomfort and difficulty.
I mean, Moses knew that going to Egypt was going to be messy. I mean, he fled Egypt. He knows the wrath of a Pharaoh. He knows it's going to be messy. But he has the living God going before him. And we do too. And often we, we look at, you know, conversations with our neighbors that are, that are Christ-oriented. And we say, oh man, they're just going to blow up. They're going to get angry at me. They're not going to respond well. Or it's just going to be awkward. Or, or even just on a, on, a, uh, on a more simple level, man, we could have that family over into our house, you know, build a relationship with those neighbors. Ah, that's going to be awkward. And we allow the potential of discomfort to prevent us from seeking God's will and being faithful in the mission. We sometimes run from God's calling because we want to avoid discomfort and difficulty. But God calls us to join his work of deliverance despite our weakness. He does. Every single one of us who's a believer is called to this work of deliverance, but he's gifted each of us individually differently. So while we all have a different role to play in the work of deliverance, when I was a young teen, I was awkward, I was bullied, I didn't have confidence. I dreaded simply raising my hand and speaking up in class. That was me as a young teen. And yet, when I got baptized, God started doing a, a work in me. And I started just being a spiritual leader among my friend group. And I didn't even know it. But later on, people were like, oh yeah, you were doing this, this, and this. I was like, what? Because I was this awkward kid with, with no confidence. And yet God was doing a work in my heart. And I remember it was probably, I think it was probably my sophomore year of high school. I was in a room upstairs meeting with Pastor Ari and some other teenagers. He was the youth pastor at the time. And we were planning Youth Sunday. For any of you that have grown up in church, you know, Youth Sunday is the classic youth pastor gives the sermon, and then a bunch of teens run around and spill the communion juice, and they, you know, they play their electric guitars, and there's your Youth Sunday. And for whatever reason, I didn't raise my hand, but yet somehow I raised my hand. I stuck my hand up and went, oh, yeah, I could do the sermon. I, I, like to this day, I did not willingly raise my hand, but somehow my hand went up in the air and I said, oh, I could do the sermon. And, and, and some of you were there. <laughs> Many years ago, I stood in this exact same spot I and mean, we had different carpet and we had a different pulpit, but I remember fearfully waddling up here in a suit that didn't fit me properly. And those were strange days. And I preached a 10-minute sermon with a Nerf gun analogy and I cringe listening to that thing. I wish Caleb did not record that because I, I cringe every single time I listen to that now going back. But that was the day that God called me to be a preacher. And like I said, we're all called to this work of deliverance, but that was how I know that I'm specially created by my creator to participate in the work of deliverance is through the preaching of his word. And that day I knew it. I felt the presence of my creator. And it wasn't because of my skill. It was an awful sermon. But it was something that God was doing. And so then, you know, I went to school. And my, my first semester of school at Liberty, 
I was just hit with this overwhelming burden for Maine. I didn't want to come back to Maine. I especially didn't want to come back to this church. And I was just hit with this overwhelming burden of the lostness of our state. And I was sitting in a meeting and they made us pray. They said, you guys, you know, we're not gonna have a meeting today. Just pray for like 10 minutes. Okay, cool. I can pray and I can get out of here. And and many of you have heard this story. It's not a new story, but I think it, it, it really applies to what we're talking about today. I sat there praying and I ran out of words. And when I ran out of words, I felt the presence of God in a way that I never had before in my life. And in the silence, he spoke. And I know that sounds not so to Baptists. And I wrestled with that experience for months because it went against everything I had been taught growing up. But I saw myself kneeling, praying under a pine tree back here in Maine. I saw faces of people here in Maine. And I heard the voice that I only knew to be my Lord. He said, David, these are my sheep. I'm sending you to them. And you know what my first objection was? <laughs> in the moment, I said, I don't have the ability. I can't do this. He said, David, my grace is sufficient for you. And once again, David, these are my sheep. I am sending you to them. And I said, I'm not worthy of this calling. He said, David, my grace is sufficient for you. Right? This is starting to sound familiar. David, these are my sheep. I'm sending you to them. And I just broke down. I said, yes, Lord. And I saw myself behind a pulpit in Maine, preaching, Bible in hand. I saw myself aged behind that pulpit. And the last thing I saw was my casket in front of it. And, and that voice said the last time, David, this is my plan for you. And that day I knew that I am to preach in this state till I die. That is my life's calling. That is my life's work. And I share that not to say, man, look at how cool that is. Because here's the sad part. Here's the sad part. Because people say, man, I wish God would do something like that in my life. I wish God would make it that clear in my life. I still fail every single week with the same failures and doubts that Moses did and all of you do. Like, it doesn't matter how spectacular God's calling is in your life. It doesn't matter how clear it is. Moses saw a burning bush. He was in the very presence of God. He had to take his sandals off. And yet he still says, God, can you send somebody else? Like, it doesn't matter. We are sinful, broken, afraid people. How many times have I sat over in this corner and I'm about to preach a sermon and I've looked at that exit sign and just wanted to run out that door? What if I preach the truth and no one changes? What if I talked with my unsafe friends and, and my arguments aren't convincing? They just think I'm nuts. But yet, who changes hearts? It's not me, it's God. Or, or secondly, right, the, the, the issue of, well, what about my ability? It's very easy to get, in, get to a point where we think that God's, God's power in our life is limited by the amount that we study. And I'm a guy who has one degree. I'm working on another degree about studying the Bible. I spend hours and hours a week studying the Bible. It's part of my job. But at the end of the day, God is in the business of working beyond my ability. He's in the business of working beyond all of our abilities. 
So often we say, well, man, I just haven't studied enough. Once I study enough, then I'm going to have this conversation with so-and-so. You know, you know once, I've, once I've developed my social skills a bit more, then I'm going to reach out to my neighbors. You know, like if God's doing the work, it doesn't matter what your ability is. It just matters if you're willing and available. So God's glory can be seen in your weakness. Uh, let, let's go back to, to 412. Exodus 4, verse 12. God said to Moses, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now, it is not proper for us to go to the Old Testament and take a promise that was given to someone else and just rip it out of context and say it's for us. It isn't. But these words should sound very familiar to us because they were reiterated in the new covenant. That God had this relationship with Moses, but in the new covenant, this has been given to all of God's people through the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. John 14, 26. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And those chapters there, uh, 14, 15, 16, are just great. I encourage you to go back and spend some time in those this week. Uh, but Luke 12, 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you want to say. You see the parallel? Now, I don't believe that any of us are going to have the exact same relationship with God that Moses had. Or that any of us are going to, you know, cast 12 plagues over your hometown. But God has given the Holy Spirit to all those who believe. And Jesus promised his followers that in those moments where you get boxed into a corner and you are just forced to witness for Jesus, you are forced to give an account on why you're a Christian and what are you doing, God will be faithful to give you words in that moment. Doesn't matter how educated you are. It's a work that God does for his glory. And he does it through his people. And I, I know, like, uh, once again, the Holy Spirit weirds out a bunch of us. He does. And, and, and we, we don't like to teach on the Holy Spirit a lot because it's uncomfortable. But can, can I just be honest with you guys? The most fruitful times of ministry in my life are not when I study the most. Though I study every single week, and study is extremely important. A life studying God's word is not a, a life wasted by any means. It's necessary. It's, it's part of faithfulness. But the most, most valuable, precious moments in ministry are not when I, you know, read a book in a week and go, man, that was great. But it's the moments where someone comes to me and, and they bring me some issue that they have that I do not have the answers for. I have not read that book. 
I have not taken that class. I have not experienced what they experienced. And I just have to, in that moment, cry out to the Holy Spirit and say, give me the words because I got nothing for them. Those are the times where God does something spectacular. I open my mouth, no clue what I'm saying. They walk away and they say, man, God has visited me. God's ministered to me. It wasn't something that I did. It's, it's those moments where, where I sit down and I pray. I say, God, who do you want me to text today? And believe it or not, usually a name or someone's face will come into my mind. And it's amazing. I, I reach out to that person. Or if, if it's a Sunday morning, I go talk to that person. And they're broken. They're hurting. They need some encouragement. I didn't know that. But God did. It's just that small act of saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm available. Who do you want me to talk to? And it's something completely above, beyond our ability. It's nothing that we do, it's something that God does. Yet, yet so often I fall back into doubt and I go, ah, you know, listening to God, that's kind of wacky stuff. I said, maybe you know, I'm just going to kind of stick within my wheelhouse, right? with, you know, with the things that I've studied, the things that I'm good at. But that's not where... God calls us. He calls us beyond our ability for his glory. And, and that third objection, I don't want to. Sometimes I wish that Steve would preach the sermon instead of me. Sometimes I have a, someone in my, in my life that I feel burdened that they need to know Jesus. And I say, Lord, send someone to minister to them. Don't you think there's a reason that God put that person on your heart and mind? Yet so often, that's what I do. Lord, send someone else to them. Send someone else to share the gospel with that family member. I don't, I don't want to go through that. I believe, honestly, if God's put it on your heart and mind, he's calling you to do it. God calls us to join his work of deliverance despite our weakness. He does. And it's humiliating and it's glorious. It's humiliating because we don't have the ability no one looks at us and says, man, you did a great job. We get to see the glory of God draw people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Would you, would you pray with me? Lord, I, I pray in these moments that you would help us to evaluate and you bring to our minds the ways that we are doing this as we continue on. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In, in application, I, I want to go through these three objections. These three objections. Well, actually, more like three steps, right? I think we should first ask ourselves the question, what is God calling me to do in his work of deliverance? Right, we're all called to the work of deliverance, but what is God calling me to do? Who is God calling me to reach out to? Who is God calling me to show generosity to? Who is God calling me to serve? Is it to pray for someone, show compassion to someone? And so then the follow-up question should be, what is stopping me? So first, what are you calling me to do? The second is what is stopping me. And that's where those three objections come into play. 
Is it because I see my limitations as God's limitations? Is it because I'm worried about someone's response and I'm trying to manipulate their heart? Or do I just simply not want to do it? So, so God, what are you calling me to do? Why am I not doing that? And then I think our response to that should be to dwell on God's faithfulness. Right here, we have history of how he has pulled through time and time and time again because our God is faithful. And we're surrounded by people in whose, whose lives God has been faithful. And we can even think back through our own past and see how God has been faithful. In the moment, it's easy to doubt. But in history, it's very hard to. So what is God calling me to? What is stopping me? I think that third step is to dwell on God's faithfulness and then do it. Allow God's past faithfulness to strengthen us in the moment and lead us to action. So I'd like you to pray again with me. And we're just going to pray through these three steps. Lord, please bring to our minds the people you're calling us to reach and serve. That may be a neighbor or a friend or a family member. Lord, please bring to our minds the people that you're calling us to serve right now. And, and as those, those names or those faces come to mind, please show us what is stopping us from joining your work of deliverance in that person's life. Please show us which of these objections or maybe something else is getting in the way of us reaching out to them. And Lord, please bring to our minds your past faithfulness how you have been good to deliver in our families, in our churches, in church history, in the history of scripture. Please bring to our minds the ways that you have been faithful in, in situations very much like our own. And Lord, please build in us a confidence in your ability to work through our weakness. Powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 